Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. During their uh, Christmas break, um, it was out on the West Coast in San Diego at Point Loma Nazarene University, which is really, if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful place, a great place for a conference um, for spiritual disciplines and growth. Um, and I got to pick him up from the airport and transport Dallas Willard to the conference. Um, he didn't say much on the way, and so we didn't have a real long conversation, but a few things that he said were very um, meaningful and I thought uh, inspirational to me. But the funniest thing, or in, most interesting thing was, um, when he first met all the students at the conference, we, it was at an evening, kind of a bonfire on the campus, and um, so night was falling, and, and the students had sung some songs and things, and then Dallas Willard spoke for a few, few minutes. And then he had a time of uh, questions and answers. And one of the students asked him, what is something that I can do that will help deepen my spiritual growth here while I'm on the campus of this Christian university, where I'm surrounded by other Christians and we have regular chapel services and things like that? And so they were asking for something else, something else that they could do to deepen their spiritual faith. And what Dallas Willard said was really, I think, caught everybody off guard. Um, but it, um, considering the crowd that he was facing, college students, um, it, it probably was appropriate. He said, well, probably the best thing you can do for your spiritual life is get more sleep. Um, of course, with college students who are up burning the midnight oil, studying, going out, you know, staying up late, of course, that kind of makes sense. You know, you, you kind of do need some extra sleep. You're finding yourself a little sleep deprived. Um, so, but then I got to thinking, that really isn't just for college students. That really could be applied to a lot of us when you think about the kind of hectic lifestyle that we live. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about sleep as a spiritual discipline maybe um, today, kind of following in the footsteps of one of my favorite authors and mentors. And our passage for today is Psalm 4. We're continuing in the series of studying the Psalms this summer. And uh, <clears throat> Psalm 4 is actually often referred to as an evening psalm because it's often read or prayed at evening time or at bedtime. Uh, mainly because what's said in that last verse, the whole psalm kind of drives itself to the final verse, which is verse 8. If we can show that on the screen. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Great, nice verse for the last thing before your head hits the pillow, right? I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Uh, another version says, I will both lie down and sleep in peace kind of breaks that into two different parts. We'll talk about that a little bit later. For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. And when I got to thinking about that, and as I was preparing for this message, I did a little bit of quick reading, um, Googling it, of course, um, about sleep deprivation. Um, sleep deprivation or sleep disorders, they have a real-life effect on us, our physical lives, our emotional lives, and, yes, our spiritual lives as well. Um, Sleep deprivation, if it's a chronic thing that goes on uh, fairly constantly, it can increase your risk of type 2 diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and depression. So it has an effect significantly on our life. So here's um, what we're going to talk about, um, but I want us to do a quick little survey, or not a survey, but maybe an inventory. Here are nine different signs or symptoms of what sleep deprivation might look like. 
Um, now, if you have just one of these, it may not mean, you know, not, may not put off any alarm, red, red lights or flashing alarms or anything like that. But if you see several of these things in your life, you might think about needing to work on the spiritual discipline of sleep. Uh, the first one is frequent hunger and or weight gain. When we run low on sleep and getting proper rest, it increases the production of a hormone called ghrelin. Um, too much ghrelin makes your body crave fatty and sugar, sugary foods. And so when you get at that craving, you start eating it, and then you start gaining weight. Um, and poor sleep can also mess with another hormone called leptin. That makes you feel full when you're eating. And if you don't have the right balance of leptin, then you don't feel full, so you just keep eating, right? Um, so that can lead to weight gain and obesity. And it can also, lack of sleep can also slow down your metabolism. So even if you're not eating more than usual, if your metabolism gets slowed down because of lack of sleep, that can also lead to weight gain, which, of course, we know is too much is not good for us. Um, a second sign is abnormal impulsiveness. We tend to act more impulsively when we don't have enough rest. Uh, we don't make good decisions. Um, we don't have the ability to say, no, maybe I shouldn't do that or take that or eat that or whatever. Um, you might find yourself doing things or saying things that you wouldn't or normally do or mean, like lashing out at a family member or ranting at a coworker or something. That might be one sign of uh, lack of sleep. A third one is brain dysfunctions like uh, shaky memory or having trouble making decisions. When you're tired, you're not usually paying a lot of attention to what you're doing, and so that does not become part of your memory-making process. And so you don't have anything to remember because you weren't paying attention in the first place. That can be a result of sleep deprivation. And a research study that was done on mice showed that um, sleep helps us, helps mice at least, maybe applies to humans, clear out the toxic molecules from the brain during sleep time. So not getting enough sleep can impair your brain's ability to repair itself, um, to gather memories, to process memories, put them together in the right kind of packages. And it can also make, you more, make it more difficult to problem solve or um, manage your time well, to organize your life. Um, decreased motor skills is another sign or symptom. When you're tired, there's a lapse between your brain and your muscles. And so you might have, uh, find yourself stumbling or dropping things or not being able to pick things up. Your reaction time and your concentration uh, kind of falter when you don't have enough sleep. Uh, another sign is fluctuating emotions. You can kind of become overreactive to emotional stimuli. Um, on the one hand, you can become really sad or maybe angry, or on the flip side, you can kind of become slap-happy or giddy because you don't have enough sleep. Um, <clears throat> another one is frequent illnesses, especially the common cold. Um, poor sleep affects your immune system. Um, your immune system produces proteins that protect against uh, sicknesses, inflammations, um, and infections. And we don't have enough sleep, of course. We don't have enough um, time for our immune system to work. Uh, another, one study found that people who get less than seven hours of sleep per night are almost three times more likely to develop a cold than those who get seven or more hours of sleep each night. Uh, a ninth, or a seventh, I'm sorry, a seventh uh, symptom is you have trouble seeing clearly. Uh, when we're fatigued, we can't control our eye muscles as well. And there's two muscles in particular that are affected by a lack of sleep. One is the ciliary muscle. That helps you focus, helps your eyes focus. And another one called the extraocular muscle, which moves your eyes from side to side or up and down. 
And so when you read, you might be seeing double, have double vision if your eyes are tired and that muscle gets tired. Um, during sleep, um, your skin works to repair your damage, any damaged cells. So when you don't get enough rest, uh, your skin doesn't have a chance to replenish itself. Um, skin recovery is 30% higher in those who have good quality sleep over those who don't have good sleep. Uh, you might have more breakouts on your skin, or your skin may ap- appear older or more wrinkled because uh, collagen hasn't had a chance to replenish itself during the nightly rest phase. Um, and number nine, you can fall asleep without realizing it. It's called um, micro-sleeping. If you nod off for just a few seconds and then you wake up and realize, wait, where, where, I was here just a second ago, but now I'm over here. Or um, things like, oh, nobody's... Okay, no one's micro-sleeping right now. Okay, just want to make sure, um, which is not a big deal, but sometimes that can happen when you're driving. Um, so I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's kind of scary. I've had it happen to me. I, I'm driving down the road, and I realize something happened, and I, didn't, I, just, I just flashed by a signpost or something, and I don't remember being going past that where I normally would remember it. Um, so if... Um, Traffic experts say that two, maybe three percent of fatalities on the road are caused by micro-sleeping or falling asleep at the wheel. Um, So all of these put together are some major symptoms, I guess, or signs of what sleep deprivation looks like in our lives. Um, I don't know, anybody getting nervous about that? Have you seen anything in yourself there? Um, So here's the master list. Take a look at that whole thing again. Hunger, impulsiveness, brain dysfunctions, decision-making, all of those. If you see three, four, five of those together in your life, um, maybe it might be a sign you're not getting enough rest or sleep at night. Um, <clears throat> now, those are, these are just symptoms. Now, what causes um, sleep deprivation or sleep disorders? Well, um, a couple of three things might be some major causes. Um, one that's, that can happen to those who are traveling a lot is jet lag. Um, if you're moving from maybe two or three different time zones, back and forth, that can cause sleep disorders. Um, another major one in our culture, in our society, in, in industrial societies, is shift work. Uh, nurses, uh, people who work in manufacturing, often get their sleep patterns all messed up because of the shift work that's involved. And you're getting up at times when the light's not right normally for waking and sleeping. Um, <clears throat> but the most common causes are basic stress. Plain old regular stress can cause um, sleep deprivation. And they say that insomnia, it's kind of like a vicious cycle. Um, insomnia can be either a symptom or maybe a cause of depression or anxiety. The same neurotransmitters that your brain uses to process um, uh, or to control your mood also controls your sleep patterns as well. So it's hard to t- say sometimes whether your sleep deprivation is causing stress or stress is causing sleep deprivation. But it can be a vicious cycle once you get into it. Um, stressful situations like uh, money or marital problems or relational problems can kick off insomnia, and that will start this, the ball rolling, and then you can't, it's hard to get out of that spiral. And so <clears throat> when we look at our Scripture passage for today, when we go back to the beginning and look at verse 1, we see that in verse 1 of the passage in Psalm 4, um, this idea of stress is present right away. And so and we'll assume that for today um, that the writer is David, the King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, and this one is the one of the Psalms that's been ascribed to David. So we're going to refer to the writer of this Psalm as David from now on. 
um, David opens up this psalm you know, under, under stress. He's distressed. In fact, the word distressed is used. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief for my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. David is um, under stress of some sort, and I think what Pastor Andy talked about last week is probably a good of a context as any. Um, most people think that, verse, that Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5 all have to do with um, psalms that are, or psalms or prayers that are uh, spoken or written or prayed at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, and again, Psalm 5, at the beginning of the day. So it kind of repeats this waking, sleeping, waking pattern. And Psalm 4 happens to be the one that starts off or starts off with this stress issue but leads into talking about what we do when we go to sleep at night. Um, <clears throat> but the context of all three of them are where David is under great stress because his son, Absalom, has been uh, rebelling against him. Is it, was, how many people were here last week when Andy told that story or reminded us of the story? Can we do a little crowdsourcing here? Let's, let's remind ourselves what's, what's going on with that story. First of all, Absalom is David's son, um, I think his next, second oldest son. And what, what's going on with Absalom? Why is Absalom rebelling against David? Remember this part of that story? Can anybody tell us what you recall? Absalom. Absalom wants to be king. He wants to be king in place of his father. Right, okay. So Absalom is basically a rival for David, for the throne of Israel. Um, so what did, what did Absalom do to generate this rebellion? Do you remember some of the things that he did? So, yeah, Jason. Okay. Absalom was a charismatic personality, <clears throat> right? And so he would set outside the gates where that's where court decisions and property disputes and stuff were settled. And Absalom would say, you can bring your problems to me. I'll listen to them. But, you know, King David, he might be too busy, but bring them to me. I'll, I'll listen to them. And he generated a lot of public support that way. Yeah. Okay. And then so the next step is, do you remember what happened next? Absalom generated a lot of sympathy from the people. And he marched on Jerusalem, the capital city. Um, and David, not wanting to have a battle with his own son, and maybe because he might have been outnumbered, who knows, um, he, rather than fight, he flees Jerusalem. And so Absalom, his son, is taking the throne in the capital city of Jerusalem, along with all of his followers that he's built up over the years. And David is fleeing for his life from his own son. So he and a few loyalists are leaving Jerusalem and heading out to find, hide in the wilderness or some, you know, the small towns and villages. And so this is the setting for Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5. So here, at the beginning of Psalm 4, what kind of distress is David under? He's running away for his life from his own son um, who's rebelling against him and, and his rule. Um, and so we see here there's a mixture, a great mixture of two thoughts. One, God, um, answer my prayers. That's one request. And also in there is a recognition that God has answered prayers in the past. Um, give me relief from my distress. Um, that's one of the two major thoughts. Um, and it's interesting in the original languages and some other versions of the Bible, um, 
the, the phrasing, the, the Hebrew word there means, um, God, not give me relief from my distress, but give me room, give me some space. Um, and it's, sometimes it's phrased in the past tense, so that God, you have given me room when I was in a tight space. When I was in a tight spot before, you've given me room. And that's a little bit different from an outright request for or recognition for rescue. But um, it's not as if God comes in and, and magically saves someone, but God gives us room for us to make decisions, for God to, for us to uh, respond to God, for us to work our way out of things with God's guidance. Um, God gives us space to operate in. And I think that's a general, not just specific to David's, David's own particular situation, but for us, generally speaking, do we find that God works that way in our lives quite a bit? God just kind of gives us space and guides us without telling us what to do. He doesn't work by coercion. Um, God does not um, manipulate us. Um, or maybe not even have a predetermined plan for that we have to try to figure out and guess what it is. Um, but he gives us space and room. Uh, and this implies, of course, that God gives us time and God gives us the resources. <clears throat> uh, Paul put it in Philippians, I think, Philippians chapter 2, I think it is. He talks about how we are supposed to work out our own salvation um, with fear and trembling, of course. But uh, the fact that God gives us this freedom, this space to uh, work on our relationship with Him, as well as what God has done for us in the past. He's given us room so that we aren't confined or blocked in or boxed in or whatever. And of course, for David, fleeing from his own son, Absalom, at this point, he needs a little bit of freedom. He needs to get away from whatever might um, be coming for him. He might be imprisoned, which is a way of being enclosed in a tight space, or he might be put to death if he's caught. Who knows? Um, but for right now, he's recognizing that in the past, God has given him room to work, and that's what he's pleading for at this point right now. Room to work, room to uh, recollect uh, what God has done in the past, room to plan on what, what to do next. What's his next move going to be in the face of this rebellion? It's a good thing, um, David thinking in the past here, it's good to remember what God has done for us in the past, um, what God, how God has been faithful to us. Um, back a few weeks ago when we um, celebrated Pentecost, we, we had that video of people that have been in the part of the church for a long time here at Emmaus Road, and we, we heard their stories about some of the great things that happened in the past. It's good to hear those kinds of stories. It's good to hear other people's testimonies of how God has worked in their lives because that can strengthen our faith as well. Um, and sometimes it's those stories or maybe our own memories of how God has been faithful that keeps us going in the present, uh, when at right now we might have doubts, uh, we might feel like our faith is weak, um, we might have questions or problems. Sometimes those memories are what we can hang our hat on to keep us going through this present trouble or situation. And that is what David is doing in this opening verse. Um, for us as a Christian congregation, our major act of remembering what God has done for us is in communion. Every week when we celebrate and receive communion, we're remembering what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and the life and the death and the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That is our major way of remembering what God has done for us. And we'll do that later this, this morning in our service. All right, verses 2 through 6, um, we kind of see a little more sharper picture of what the sources of David's distress are. 
Um, generally, we know it's because Absalom is rebelling against him and David is on the run. Um, and one of the most interesting parts about this psalm is that once we get past the opening uh, verse, a lot of it is addressed to other people, not to God. So David is talking to other people as if they were there to hear him, which they probably aren't. They're in Jerusalem and he's running away from them. Um, but if he were there in their presence, he would say this to them. Um, he'd say, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Um, so these people um, are, remember David lived in a, what they call an honor-shame society, and your respect and the honor that were given to you was very important. Your name and your reputation were, were everything. And when something bad happened to you, people would say, well, God is displeased with him. He should be ashamed or he is shamed. And so you lose that place of honor, and that's a major faux pas or a major misfortune that has happened to you. And this is where David is right now, of course. And those, his enemies, those who have taken over, Absalom and his followers, are um, basically disrespecting David, haven't respected his position as king of Israel. Um, so we might say that they're dissing him or throwing shade his direction, whatever. This is what's going on in this verse. And so David is telling them, why are you doing this? Why are you disrespecting me in this way? Um, and when it says there, how long will you people, the actual Hebrew term refers to not just people in general, but uh, to officials and prominent people in the government and in the society. So it, it's, again, to Absalom and maybe some of the court people that were part of David's court and administration who now have joined Absalom and now are rebelling against David. So he's speaking to the leaders of the people of Israel who have rebelled against him. Um, <clears throat> so um, he's saying this, saying, why, why are you doing this to me? You're not doing me right, basically. Um, and he, then he tells them that really what you're doing is you're chasing false hope and following a false leader. Um, what, this is not going to end well for you. Uh, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? They're chasing after the wrong hopes and dreams. And so David warns them about this at, the, at this point. Um, <clears throat> so this is his major stressor. Stressor number one for David is the disrespect, the disloyalty, the shaming, the lying that's been done, uh, and the betrayal of others, even his own son. That's a major stressor in his life. Um, now, I don't know how we're not kings, and, and this kind of stress may not be directly appropriate for us. Um, we might have a little profile, lower profile of stress in our lives, but haven't we had people that have betrayed us or have people told, you know, have people tell lies about us to other people, that creates major issues and stresses in our lives, great deep, deep anxieties. Um, have you ever been embarrassed or ashamed or humiliated in front of other people? Those are the kind of stressors that David is dealing with and that we're talking about in this psalm here. Um, have you ever had second thoughts or regrets about something you said or did or maybe thought you should have said? Um, I'm, I'm always replaying in my mind, I, I, I'm not a good... Uh, extemporaneous speaker, so I tend to think of after the issue is gone, I'm, you know, when I'm by myself or whatever, oh, why didn't I say that? I should have said that. I have regrets. Or if I see someone doing something nice, you know, why didn't I think of that? I should have done that for that person. Instead, you know, 
My wife, Debbie, is always the one that is the conscience in our family. So she thinks of what should be done to help or comfort someone else. I'm going, ah, why didn't I think of that? My regrets and my sh- the shame that comes along with that are things that can lead to, you know, kicking yourself over and over again about what you did or didn't do. It's those kinds of things that lead to this kind of anxiety that David is dealing with. In verse 3, then, let's take a look at that. This is where David responds again, continues his response. He says that, Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant, meaning himself, David, for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So David is reminding his enemies, his opponents, that God is going to be faithful to him. And no matter what they do or say about him, um, he knows God, David is confident in the fact that God will honor him for his loyalty to God. Um, and he's just letting his enemies know, this is what, you know, you can embarrass me, shame me, mock me, call me names, chase me out all over the country. Um, that's not bad. That's not good. But I know that God will honor me. I know whose I am and I know who I belong to. And then in verses 4 and 5, he gives warning and advice to these enemies, um, basically saying, tremble and do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts, be silent, basically imploring them to think about what they're doing, think about what you're doing. Um, You might think you're on the right side of history, Uh, your anger at me or the whatever I've done um, might be righteous and you might feel superior to me right now, Uh, but it's actually, it could backfire on you. Um, so David implores them to think about the choices that they're making and to offer sacrifices, basically, to get back and to offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. He implores them to come back to following God and God's chosen king, which he is himself, of course, David. Um, <clears throat> this is interesting when we compare it to ver- uh, Psalm 3, which we looked at last week. Um, David does not ask God to destroy his enemies. He doesn't even want them to be proven wrong, um, which, of course, is quite a contrast. Remember last week, there was a verse in there where David says to God, um, strike them in the jaw, break their teeth out. Um, that's, that was the, the emotion David was feeling when he wrote Psalm 3. But here in Psalm 4, he's a much more generous kind of a spirit um, and asking God or asking them to think about what they can do to get back in God's good graces. They can rejoin the community of God's people. And so he's not feeling vindictive necessarily. He's just giving them a fair warning and imploring them to come back to God and be, be on God's side. When he says, tremble and do not sin, when you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Um, this, this kind of implies um, a really sincere, heartfelt repentance because when you're alone um, at your bed, um, that's when you're most authentically yourself. You're not doing it for other people. You're not in, a, in with a group of other people. It's not done in public for a public show, but in the privacy of your own heart, your own home, that's where you're going to make the most sincere repentance and make the best decisions. And so David is asking his enemies, think about this. Um, when you go to bed in your heart of hearts, um, you know, think about repenting. Come, please come back to God and come back to my side. Meanwhile, verse 6 takes us to another group of people that David is wanting to address, and that is that smaller group of loyal followers who have fled with him out of Jerusalem, and they're following him around wherever he's running to and from. Um, their stress is building within that little community as well. Um, so David expresses what he's been hearing from these people. So he says, many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? 
let the light of your face shine on us. So the people that are following David are a little bit like the people who followed Moses through the wilderness. They're starting to get nervous about, you know, have we made the right choice here? Um, we need, you know, we're, we're without food and water. We're having to live off the land. Um, we're being chased by our enemies. <clears throat> so they're imploring David, um, who will bring us prosperity? And then they're asking God, let your, the light of your face shine on us. Um, that phrase, the light, let the light of your face shine on us, means to show favor to us. Show us your favor, Lord. It's an echo of some, an earlier benediction in the book of Numbers. I don't know if you've heard this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. That means that face shining on you means that God is showing your fa- his favor on you. And so the people that are following David are wanting God to show his favor on them once again. They feel like maybe God has turned his back on them because they're being chased. And so David here is dealing with this small group of people that have remained loyal to me, yes, but they're getting nervous. They're maybe not making, they're not sure they made the right decision in following me instead of Absalom. So David is facing peer pressure maybe, a little bit of pressure to take care of the people that have followed him. Um, They are comparing themselves with the people who are in Jerusalem right now where there's plenty of food and wine and water and comfort and security and safety. And they're comparing themselves between those two groups and they're they're not sure that they want to do that any longer. Um, So that stressor is stressor number two, the peer pressure, the the pressure to um, take care of other people to make sure that they're safe and secure. Um, For us, that might be where we feel pressure for our family, taking care of our families. Um, Maybe the pressure to succeed in business or in life, Um, excelling at work or at school or whatever, or just life generally. Um, There might be general cultural expectations on what it means to be successful in our world. Um, That pressure can build on a person and uh, lead to sleepless nights. It might keep you awake at night. Um, We might have pressure or expectations from teachers, our employers, uh, our parents, um, maybe even ourselves, uh, putting pressure on ourselves for you're not who you are supposed to be, you're you're not living up to your potential kinds of things. That kind of pressure can build up on a person and lead to sleep deprivation, right? Keep you awake on your bed at night. But then in verses 7 and 8, there's a sudden change. There's a mood change. Something happens here to the person who was talking about all the distress that he was in. All of a sudden now, uh, David is in this humiliating position. He's being chased from his own city by his rebellious son. He's under pressure to bring prosperity back to his people. Um, And yet he says he finds joy in his situation. My heart is filled with joy. And my heart is filled with joy when their grain and their new wine abound. They, meaning the people who are in Jerusalem, following Absalom, they're safe and secure behind the walls. They've got plenty to eat and drink. Um, <clears throat> but even so, I've, I think I'm better off right now than they are because I have the joy that I know comes from following God and doing what I know God wants me to do. Um, he finds more joy than those who are enjoying the temporary comforts of following Absalom. And then the final verse, the final phrase, which we started out with, verse 8, in peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now we see what kind of a strange contrast, what a quick journey David has come from, from talking in verse 1 about, I'm under distress, Lord, help me, to here, I'm going to lie down and go to sleep in peace and know that I'm safe in in God. Um, That's quite a drastic change just in the span of a few verses, and I don't know what it looked like in real time in David's life, Um, 
for us, I don't know, what keeps you awake at night? Um, do you ever have those nights where you're lying awake, more or less babysitting the whole world? Um, you're worried about the kids or the grandkids, uh, the bills, your job or lack of a job, your health, not to mention North Korea or Syria or climate change or whatever you want to throw in there that you worry about at night. Um, you can't get to sleep. But this, this psalm, and David is saying, peace be with you, shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, be with you. Relax, let God run the world for a while. Have a good sleep while you can. Of course, that's easier said than done. But um, the, another Bible, Bible version talks, kind of breaks that into two different pieces. Lie down, it says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. Lying down is one thing. We can go to bed, right? But we don't often... Uh, fall immediately to sleep. There's usually a time, a little time in there where we're thinking about processing the day or thinking about tomorrow, worrying, babysitting the world, so to speak, um, <clears throat> before we actually fall asleep. So you can go to bed, you can lie on your bed, but you cannot really be one with your mattress, right? There's a space in there. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but there's sometimes there's this little, like a second or two where you're in that transition period where you're moving from lying on your bed to being one with the mattress, and you can recognize, oh, I'm falling asleep, and this is going to be good. And it lasts, sometimes it lasts just a second or two, and sometimes I'm not even aware aware of it. But when you feel that feeling, isn't that really a a great, warm, nice feeling knowing I'm going to have a good night's sleep tonight? Sometimes we don't have that feeling, and sometimes we stay awake for long, many hours. But moving from the tension of the day to full relaxation, being on your bed and being one with it, that's what is talking, that David talks about here, especially in that, the translation that says, I will lie down and I will sleep in peace. And the final word of that phrase, sleeping in peace, is a key here for David. Um, for those, um, when you have this as you're going to bed verse, this famous phrase, this famous verse, um, it can be a really great comforter for your nightly sleep. I will sleep in peace knowing that I'm secure in God. <clears throat> but as Andy reminded us last week, sometimes the language of sleep in the Bible is also a kind of a metaphor for this big sleep, death. Uh, the death, the sleep that we all kind of avoid or, or um, maybe run away from. But death, death, life and death is often compared to waking and sleeping in the Bible. So if we think about, if we read this final verse here, As a final go-to-bed verse, that can be a great comfort to us. But maybe even greater is when we read it through the lens of Easter and Jesus' resurrection, knowing that when we go to meet the big sleep, uh, death itself, um, then it becomes for us very important to think about how we face death uh, peacefully as well. Now, there's a common belief, um, and there's some scripture um, evidence for that, is that when we die, we go directly to heaven, um, into God's presence, and live there. <clears throat> but the more common scriptural references to sleeping and resting uh, indicate that <clears throat> perhaps at death we fall into this deep sleep. Um, have you ever seen um, old graveyards where the gravestones have R.I.P. in it, rest in peace? That's, that reflects this old Christian belief that we are resting, in those who are, have died in Christ are resting in peace and will wake up on that great day of the great resurrection when Christ returns and all those who have died in Christ, uh, who have been asleep in Christ, will wake up and join those of us who are, are alive at the time. 
Um, so this deeper, older Christian tradition is expressed by this kind of language, by sleeping, going to sleep in peace. There's an old hymn that reflects the same kind of thing. It's got two lines I think were kind of poignant. Um, the hymn is called, All Praise to Thee, My God, This Night. It's kind of a, a hymn to pray at nighttime. <clears throat> and the two verses are, Teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. Teach me to die so that I may, I may rise glorious at that awesome day. So that reflects this belief that when we die, we are resting and sleeping, but we're going to be awakened to join Christ and all of his saints at that great resurrection day. And that's the kind of language that, we, that we can, is reflected here, perhaps, in the belief of David and what he's thinking about. <clears throat> so we've moved in this short eight-verse psalm from distress to peace. Um, and we've learned a couple things. One, God is very approachable in prayer. God goes directly to, David goes directly to God when he's under, in stress, facing stressful situations, and he expresses himself. I'm in distress, Lord. I know that you have listened to me in the past. Hear me now and save me. Uh, that's the second thing. God has delivered us from the pa- in the past, and remembering that can help us get through the present. A third thing that we can learn from Psalm 4 is that God rules everything. Um, therefore, we can rest secure in that knowledge that God is going to love us, He's going to be with us no matter what we go through, and eventually He'll be with us at the great resurrection. And then the last thing we learn is that the peace of God is upon His people. Um, Now, we talk about peace, the word peace in the Bible, especially in Hebrew, the word shalom, is more than just a lack of conflict or uh, hostility. Uh, Shalom is a positive phrase. It means it's more holistic than just a lack of conflict. It means that there's a full, holistic, full-bodied kind of peace that we are experiencing. Everything in the world actually is in balance. There's a harmony. Um, Justice and well-being are lived out and experienced by everybody. And when we say shalom, that's a common greeting in the Middle East, um, it's basically a blessing for the other person or on the other person. And it's a blessing and a hope that everything is right with you, your body, mind, soul, spirit, relationships, everything. Um, and that is how the biblical phrase of peace, um, what it, that's what it means. It's not just a lack of conflict or hostility, but it's a positive um, situation, a positive experience of wholeness, well-being um, all around. So David talks about this peace being experienced when he goes to bed at night, despite all the stressors in his life. Um, And that same experience that David talked about is promised to everyone who is in Christ. Uh, We're reminded every Christmas season, right, about this kind of peace. When we read Luke 2.14, the angels announce that Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests or on whom his face shines. Jesus himself promised this kind of shalom, this holistic kind of peace to those who followed him uh, during his ministry. And just before he went to his death, he told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, so don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then on this side of Easter, the risen Jesus faced his disciples. They were confused, not wondering, you know, what had happened now, our our leader, 
our rabbi, our teacher has left us and been taken from us. And then all of a sudden, he appears to them as the risen Jesus, and he says, peace be with you. And that word peace is the same kind of shalom peace that we've been talking about from the Hebrew. So just like Psalm 4 and Jesus' words to his disciples, the Apostle Paul was also writing to a Gentile audience, that is non-Jewish people, talking about the same kind of peace. And here's the way he explained it. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of promise that we can go to bed with and go to sleep with in peace as well. Now, <clears throat> Paul can write those words. Um, we can read them. We can take them into our heart, but we can't always live them out because we live in a real world of all sorts of stressors, right? Um, <clears throat> here's one thing that Christian congregations have done over the centuries. Um, before they receive communion, they pass the peace to each other. And that, by that I mean... It's a blessing to each other and a statement that everything is okay between you and me. And so knowing that, that our relationships are healthy and whole and that um, we are living in right relationship with God, we can now go forward and we, we can receive communion with a clear conscience. Um, and so a lot of congregations, a lot of traditions uh, pass the peace to each other right before they receive communion. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, and I'll invite you in a minute here to join me by passing this shalom kind of peace. Now, there's different ways you can do it. Um, I'll, there'll be a prompt on the slide, and I will say a few words, and you can respond back to me. But then, as you pass the peace to each other, um, you can shake hands, you can hug, you can just smile. Um, you can say, the peace of the Lord be with you, or you can just say, peace to you, or you can just say, peace, or you can just smile whatever you feel comfortable doing. But basically, we're exchanging that blessing with each other, and then we'll come together as a unified body to receive the sacrament of communion. So, you game for it? Are we ready? Here's the slide. I'll, I'll lead us. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Thank you. Now, please, stand, take a few minutes, and exchange the peace of Christ with each other. <clears throat> 